This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The Supreme Court had a new conservative majority this term, but most business decisions did not fall down ideological lines. Still, business fared well, as it usually does at the Roberts Court, winning decisions that cut back on union rights, raise new hurdles for some consumer class actions, and slash the Federal Trade Commission's power to seek monetary awards in court. Joining me is Jonathan Macy, a professor at Yale Law School. John, over the years, has the Roberts Court been friendly to business? Generally speaking, it's, it's generally speaking pro-business, but not, you know, not to a ridiculous degree by any stretch. So looking at the balance sheet, so to speak, does it seem like it was a good term for business? Yeah, I think the Supreme Court is a happy place for business right now. I think it doesn't have any of the pathologies that we've seen either in the White House or Congress. I think the decisions are largely sensible. I think business is reassured by the certainty that these decisions provided and the fact that the courts were not always making these decisions along ideological grounds was also a source of comfort. Let's take a look at some of the business wins this term. In a case involving union rights and property rights, the court ruled that California was violating the Constitution with a decades-old regulation, an achievement of Cesar Chavez's movement, that gives union organizers access to agricultural company land for part of the year to talk to workers. This was the only business decision this term where the vote was six to three down ideological lines. And it was fairly clear after the oral arguments that the unions were going to lose the case. Here are Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Amy Coney Barrett. This could be end up being an authorization to enter uh, every day of the year, which you would acknowledge is a taking. What is the big deal here? If the severity goes to compensation, as the petitioners claim, why would it be that big of a deal for California to say to the unions, listen, to compensate for the taking, if you want access, you pay 50 bucks? How big a loss is this for unions? Well, it's a fairly narrow decision in a way. I would characterize it much more as a property rights decision as much as a pro-business decision. But it does say that farmers have, you know, the right to their property and their land. I think that was an important decision that the union's physical access to farm workers by going over the land of farmers was something that was not going to be permitted. I think it was fairly expected. I don't think it surprised anybody. I think it was the right decision. There are only seven decisions this term that went strictly down ideological lines. Why do you think this was one of them? Well, I think that this was a fairly clear, bright-line question. Are you going to decide with property rights or are you going to decide with union access? And in a decision like that, you're going to get a pretty stark ideological schism. Do you agree that the conservatives on the court have been eroding the power of organized labor for some time, even in 2018, reversing a 40-year-old precedent in the Janus case? Is this court generally hostile to unions? I don't think that they're hostile to unions. I don't think that they're overly friendly to unions either. You know, I think that there's a problem with unions in this country that they're not doing a particularly good job of representing workers. And they've had problems historically with corruption and the like. And I think that it's much more a matter of unions haven't earned the court's respect as much as it is about the Supreme Court being anti-worker. Let's go to another business win, TransUnion versus Ramirez. 
In this case, the court put new limits on consumer lawsuits backing TransUnion in its challenge to a $40 million award to thousands of people the credit reporting firm characterized as potential terrorists. Does this raise the bar for some consumer class actions? This decision was one of the more surprising decisions. We have a special situation with these large credit reporting agencies. They have a tremendous amount of of power and an ability to really wreck people's lives. And so people were watching that case carefully to see if there were going to be any meaningful constraints put on these large credit reporting agencies. It was a five to four vote. Justice Clarence Thomas split from the conservatives and joined the liberals writing the dissent. It's one of only two times this term that he joined the liberals in dissent. Why did Thomas split from the conservatives here? You know, he's always been a little bit of a wild card on these business law cases. And so he's not as clear a member of the conservative camp in cases like this. Let's turn to Penn East versus New Jersey, where the court ruled that natural gas pipeline projects with federal approval can seize state-owned land. Was this a bit of a surprise because the justices often favor states' rights? Well, many of the justices are. The court is also, you know, in favor of big business as well. So there was a little bit of a tension in this case. It was a five to four ruling along really unusual lines. In the majority, the chief justice, conservative Samuel Alito and Brett Kavanaugh, and liberals Stephen Breyer and Sonia Sotomayor. In dissent, conservative justices Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, and Amy Coney Barrett were joined by liberal justice Elena Kagan. How do you explain that lineup? Well, a lot of it, I think, had to do, in this case, with personalities. You're quite right. There was you know, some significant departures with the traditional ways that these justices voted, and they were kind of all over the map. I don't think you can draw a clear ideological map from the justices to the results in that particular case. John, let's look at another win for business in a case where the facts were horrifying, involving child slave labor on cocoa farms on the Ivory Coast. But the legal question was fairly prosaic. Could U.S. corporations, Nestle and Cargill in this case, be sued by foreigners for aiding and abetting actions overseas? The answer was no. Here's Justice Samuel Alito during the oral arguments. So after 15 years, is it too much to ask that you allege specifically that the, the, the defendants involved, the defendants who are before us here, specifically knew that forced child labor was being used on the farms or farm cooperatives with which they did business. Is that too much to ask? After the oral arguments, I think this was expected. I think so. I don't think it was a very big surprise. I think the courts feel there has to be some limit to the amount, uh, the extent to which U.S. courts are going to be used to settle, you know, civil rights litigation or human rights litigation in ways that really don't affect the U.S. in any meaningful way. Now, in a unanimous decision, the court slashed the Federal Trade Commission's power to seek monetary awards in court, throwing out a legal tool the Consumer Protection Agency has used to collect billions of dollars over the past decade. Is it surprising that this was unanimous? I was a little bit surprised by that, actually. This is a decision that will unambiguously benefit certain businesses And I think that there was just a sense of a little bit too much bureaucratic overreaching there. But I think it was quite a surprise at how decisive that particular decision was. How much does it limit the FTC's power? 
So I think it's a it's a fairly minor limit on their power. The FCC still has a lot of you know arrows in its quiver, if you will, a lot of strategies. So it will still be able to take action to benefit consumers. They're just um, you know the ability to recover certain kinds of gains in these consumer-based cases has been curtailed a bit. Next, the Goldman Sachs case, where investors accused the company of misleading shareholders by masking conflicts of interest in mortgage-backed securities it sold. The court gave Goldman another chance to stop the lawsuit, but it seems like such a long shot. So I don't know whether to characterize this as a business win or a business loss. Yeah, I don't know either. I think that one is a little bit difficult to characterize. I think it has to be viewed as, as a, at least a modest setback as that lawsuit is allowed to go forward against Goldman Sachs. It's allowed to go forward, but it seems like the Second Circuit is going to rule against Goldman as it did before. I think that's right. I think that's absolutely right. So now let's turn to some of the business losses, starting with a huge loss for the NCAA, a unanimous rejection of the NCAA's bid for broad antitrust immunity, clearing the way for greater compensation for student-athletes. The justices were obviously sympathetic to the athletes during the oral arguments, with Justices Brett Kavanaugh, Clarence Thomas, and Samuel Alito questioning why athletes weren't getting a bigger share of the billions of dollars schools get from sports. I mean, you said earlier uh, this would allow the players to receive $6,000 a year, as if that were some exorbitant amount when the TV contracts are in the billions. Well, it just strikes me as odd that uh, the coaches' uh, salaries have ballooned and they're in the amateur ranks, as are the players. So the argument is they are recruited, they're used up, and then they're cast aside without even a college degree. So they say, how can this be defended in the name of amateurism? Well, this was a case in which the U.S. Supreme Court decided that this was going to be the beginning of the end for a very long period of NCAA exploitation of essentially child labor in the activities of the student-athletes. This decision was long expected. The culture gap between the NCAA and the rest of the known universe is really quite significant in this case. And essentially the ability of student-athletes to use their own licenses, et cetera, et cetera, was a very obvious decision. I think what was notable about the decision was the strength of the rhetoric in Justice Kavanaugh's opinion. It was a very eloquent decision defending the rights of these athletes. Yes, Kavanaugh's concurrence seemed to be opening the door to more suits by student-athletes, sort of cheering student-athletes on. Absolutely, that uh, this was only the beginning, and it does seem as though it's been teed up for future losses for the NCAA in, in subsequent litigation. I think you're absolutely right. There was another unanimous ruling about Ford that it had to face product liability claims from auto accidents in Montana and Minnesota. How much is that a setback for corporations? I think that decision was also largely expected, and I don't think it'll be you know, a significant setback for liberation or a stock price movement. Uh, I think support that analysis. Why not? Is it a limited decision? Yeah, well, I think that the chances of these particular problems arising with great regularity are not very significant. And they're problems that can be dealt with through engineering and insurance and built into the price of these automobiles and other manufactured goods. 
Johnson & Johnson didn't argue a case before the Supreme Court, but it certainly lost at the court when the justices refused to take its appeal from a $2.1 billion award to women who claimed its baby powder was contaminated with cancer-causing asbestos. So the Supreme Court left intact the largest verdict in the almost decade-long litigation over the iconic product. Why do you think not even four justices were willing to take this case? They just declined to consider it, and I think that they're just respecting the trial process and not interfering with trial court results, you know, upholding the jury system. So my scorecard shows many significant business wins and a few losses. A good term on the whole for business. Is there a particular reason that you see why there are so many different lineups in these cases and several unanimous cases? I think the courts are kind of a beacon of civilization right now. I think the Supreme Court in particular is trying to show that there is something to the rule of law and that there is a difference, a stark dividing line between law and politics. And as incredibly politicizes the nomination and appointment process to the courts has become, particularly under Congress recently, the fact of the matter is that the people who are getting appointed are are generally quite professional and competent legal minds and are following the law. Thanks for being on the show, John. That's Professor Jonathan Macy of Yale Law School. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, the gender gap at the Supreme Court lectern. We will hear argument first this morning in case 2255, Mahanoy Area School District versus BL. Ms. Blatt? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. It's not that often that a woman takes the lectern at the Supreme Court. Lisa Blatt is a Supreme Court star. She's argued 41 cases before the court, more than any other woman, winning 37. But Blatt of Williams Connolly is the exception rather than the rule. Men outnumbered women advocates 125 to 28 at arguments during this term. Joining me is Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson, Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter who's been tracking the numbers. Kimberly, we've talked before about how women lawyers are underrepresented at the Supreme Court. Have the numbers improved this past term? Well, they really haven't improved over the past decade. We've seen the percentage of women arguing cases fall between 12 and 22 percent. This term fell 18 percent right in the middle of that But this is an issue that the percentage goes a little bit up and down, but we still see a big gap in male and females arguing at the Supreme Court. You talk to a lot of experts in this area. What is the problem? I mean, there are so (laughs) many women attorneys practicing law. Why are there so few at the Supreme Court level? This is a really big problem that has many different kind of solutions that people are looking to in the hopes that the next 10 years will be better than the last 10 years. One problem that we found when just looking at the numbers of Supreme Court arguments was that men tend to do repeat arguments at the Supreme Court, whereas women don't often get those same opportunities. So we saw a number of men argue five cases, which doesn't sound like a lot, but there just aren't that many Supreme Court cases. It ended up being something like 13% of all the cases were argued by these five men. On the flip side, there was only a handful of female attorneys who even argued two cases. So, you know, one 
thing that advocates have pointed out is that having a star attorney at a law firm do all of the arguments can, you know, really cause this gender gap to persist. It was interesting. You spoke to Hogan and Lovell's Neil Katyal, and he said the lack of diversity in the Supreme Court bar is something that keeps him up nights. But yet he argued three of his firm's four arguments this term. That's right. And, you know, a lot of people who I spoke to said it's not just about the partner at the top. A lot of it's about convincing clients. These are their livelihoods, especially when you're talking about companies. General counsels have to go back to their boards and say, we hired the best Supreme Court advocate rather than, you know, we gave this junior partner an opportunity to argue a case. And what really matters to them is the win. But I will note that Neil Castell is really interesting because he's one of only a handful of attorneys of color who argue at the court. And when we talk about gaps in coverage of advocates at the court, the racial gap is one of those really big ones, too, which is probably even worse than the gender gap that exists. So five male lawyers argued four cases each, which represented 13 percent of all the arguments at the court. And one of those advocates, Canon Shanmugam, is a man of color. That's true. So again, this was Canon Shanmugam at Paul Weiss. You know, there are probably a number of factors that could really play into why he was the only advocate from his firm to get up to the Supreme Court lectern this term, including that they're a really new practice, so their bench is not that deep. But it does really highlight the problem of just trying to count the number of arguments by women. We lose a lot of other kinds of diversity in the conversation as well, which deserves to be talked about. I suppose if you're a client and you know that one of the attorneys has argued multiple times at the Supreme Court, you'd want that person to argue for you. But it's also troubling that even with first-time appearances, men outnumber the women, 37 men compared to 11 women. Yeah, I think that was really surprising for a lot of the advocates who I talked to because there is kind of this sense that there's been so much light on this that things should be getting better, but that number really suggests that it's not. And when you dig a little deeper into that number, you see that law firms are also driving the disparity for first-time advocates, although instead of being at these big law firms, you know, with one big Supreme Court star, it tends to be, you know, smaller firms, solos or regional law firms that are pushing that diversity. But it's still a problem and one that suggests we're not making a lot of progress. Some women do seem to be trying to fix the problem. Tell us about Lisa Blatt, who she is and and what she's been doing. Right. Well, she's the female advocate who's argued the most at the Supreme Court. She's argued 41 cases. And this year, it seemed like there was a real effort to get two other women in her practice to get their first Supreme Court arguments, and actually one notched two, Sarah Harris, and she ended up being the only woman from private practice who actually argued more than one case at the Supreme Court. But again, Lisa had a really conscious effort, not just by the time the argument came around, but from the very start to really sell you know, these two other younger partners to the clients in order to get the clients comfortable with allowing them to argue. And all four of their cases this year over at Williams and Connolly were argued by women. Lisa Blatt told you she just couldn't give up the cheerleader case. (laughs) That's right. So anybody who's seen Lisa Blatt argue uh, knows that she's a really passionate um, 
arguer. She's very aggressive, and she has this way with the justices that I just don't think anyone else could get get away with. Very casual. Um, and this case was about a teenager who had been punished by a school district because um, she used profanity on social media. And so this was a case, kind of a match made in heaven um, for Lisa Blatt. Um, and she admitted that she just can't give it up. And she recognizes that that's hard for other partners to do. But she said it's something that, you know, they need to be able to do to step aside in order to kind of start to bridge this gap a little bit. You know, another thing is, I assume that the people who are writing the briefs are not the lawyers who are doing the arguments. So the people who write the briefs are normally more junior. That's true. Often that's the case is you have you know, kind of a a lead associate or or junior partner take the first crack at writing the briefs. That's not to say that, you know, the person at the top isn't very much involved. Um, They are. But uh, oftentimes, you know, that is something to highlight to clients is that this person wrote your brief. They know the arguments in and out, um, and they probably could do a really strong job uh, making the arguments orally as well as in writing. So what is the situation at the Solicitor General's office as far as women and women arguing Supreme Court cases? Well, the Solicitor General's office is a huge driver of all kinds of these, you know, gaps that we have, men, women, um, and, you know, racial diversity and diversity of practice. Um, That's because they just argue so many more cases than any other litigant. And it's a place where we really see, you know, because the office is small and they argue so many cases, it's a real opportunity um, for young lawyers to get a number of arguments under their belt so that when they leave the office, they can say, I'm an experienced Supreme Court advocate. And that office, you know, for a while had been kind of on parity uh, with equal men and women in it and fell sharply during the first year of the Trump administration. But those numbers are climbing. And right now we have the person who's leading that is uh, a woman, uh, Elizabeth Pilarder. Um, and so I would expect those numbers to go up. But the Solicitor General's office is just one of these pipelines, you know, as well as partners stepping aside, as well as filling the Solicitor General's office with, you know, a diverse group of people. It's just one of many things that needs to change in order for us to see some equality here. And even there, as you're article points out, two of the male attorneys at the SG's office argued four cases each. That's right. And these were both, you know, the office has just three career officials um, who are really longtime advocates. And so it's not surprising that those people would argue the most cases. I think, um, you know, there are maybe three or four advocates, I think just three who have argued 100 cases. Um, and two of them came, you know, from those career positions. But right now they're all filled by men. Um, and so that, of course, is going to be a huge driver of lack of diversity. And they're all white men. So it's going to, you know, hurt kind of the numbers on all levels. Um, and so until that changes, I think, you know, we're going to, again, have to look to, you know, that as a significant driver. And we'll see if the numbers overall improve next term. Thanks so much, Kimberly. That's Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.